It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. This five-game series is so loaded with games. We figured let's do Rico Bronia after the first two games of this series, just so we're not completely overwhelmed after all five games are played. So welcome to a... We're not quite halfway through this series, but we've, we're have 40% way through this series edition of Rico Bronia, Evan Roberts, Pete Hoffman. The Mets and Braves have split the first two games. We are recording this, though, right after they lost game two, a game that certainly appeared as if it was going to be a blowout, appeared as if it was just going to be one of those nights, one of those nights in baseball where you're non-competitive, you get your ass kicked, and you go home. And I guess I could give you the positive, that the Mets didn't do that. That while the Mets were down 8 to nothing in the second inning, they kept you interested. They kept you engaged. They gave you moments of, whoa, could they actually come back and win this game? And ultimately, the answer to that question was no. They weren't going to come back and win this game. So if you want to take that as a positive, which I, I sort of do, but not really, the way I'd answer that is, I think as a fan, ultimately, you... You want to be entertained for three and a half hours. You know, you're down eight, nothing in the second inning. The last thing you want to do is shut the TV off and say, okay, that sucks. So the Mets were able to at least give you fight, give you a little bit of hope. I don't usually think that leads to anything the next day other than maybe wearing down your opponent's bullpen. That's one positive you could take out of it, but I don't think there's momentum into the next day. I think it shows the character of the team. Sure. The Mets have been a team all year long that fights. They come back. That game against Philadelphia to me was still pound for pound. Maybe the best win we've seen in a long, long time. So that's good. You know, it's good that they didn't lose 13 to one. That's a positive. The negative is it's a loss and they all count the same. Hate to break it to you. Whether it's 10, nine, 19 to one, two to one, Seven to three, it all counts the same. As far as this game is concerned, look, number one, Taiwan Walker was bad. And I think there were two concerns you'd have about Taiwan Walker. Number one, is he healthy? Because he did have that incredibly awkward fall or whatever you want to call that when his spike got caught on the mound. And it looked as if he got tripped up and maybe his hip was bothering him or something was bothering him. And luckily he threw a warm-up pitch and said, I'm good. Except he wasn't good. He got his ass kicked. I don't know if it's related. I think it's easy to say it's related. Keith, I think, said it on the broadcast. Ah, ever since that spike, he's been a different guy. Because remember, he got the first guy, Ronald Acuna, out, got him to pop up. And he did give up the double to Dansby Swanson. So there was a runner on second base with one out. And then he did that spike pitch to Matt Olson, stayed in the game, gives up an RBI double, hits Austin Riley, gives up the home run to Eddie Rosario, and then eventually fights at the first inning after Guillermo made the rare error. So the same result may have occurred whether he fell off the mound or not, but it certainly was a warning sign. So number one, you want to make sure he's healthy. Uh, number two, 
and this is just going to come up all the time when we talk about Taiwan Walker because he has a history now with this team. He had an atrocious second half. And his start to this second half has been up until this start good. Uh, good. Like I say that with that tone only because he's battled. No, the Yankee game was a battle. Was it a dominant performance? No. But he was able to at least fight through it. And I think that's what we've seen over Taiwan Walker in his two starts in the second half of this season. This one's just a nightmare. This is, this is an ERA ruler. That's what it is. This is a Hoffman, what I'm talking about. If you started Taiwan Walker in your fantasy team, he's just destroyed your ERA for the week. Uh, I think his ERA for the day was 72. So that's not a good, that's <laughs> not good. By the way, FYI, I have him on my team and I didn't start him. So I'm the champion. <laughs> really? Yes. You know what's interesting? Taiwan Walker was on a, a fantasy team and was offered to me every week this season. <laughs> like every week, the guy who had him offered me Taiwan Walker. And no offense, I just didn't need him. I'm loaded with starting pitching, as as people tell you. And I forgot Hoffman got Taiwan Walker right before the trade deadline just a few days ago. So you benched him instead of him making his debut. But by the way, I'm just so curious, and I have not looked at your fantasy matchup, and obviously the audience has no yeah. idea. Did you bench him because just the way your week was going, we play a head-to-head league, because the week was going, or did you bench him because you didn't like the matchup against the Because Atlanta? how my week is going. My, right now I have 36 innings okay. pitched, and my ERA is 1.49, and my whip is 1.05. So I'm not really okay. going to try to ruin that. Okay. I could have. No, no. <laughs> I, I, oh, yes. Yes, you could have. <laughs> All right, so at least you weren't saying, ah, I was the matchup. I knew going in, I felt real bad about this. No, I was saying, I was on air at 5 in the morning this morning saying that I, this is a perfect matchup for the Mets. I mean, this should be money in the bank. Taiwan Walker has been lights out, and freaking Ian Anderson's got an ERA of 4.99. This is beautiful. Well, look, the, the part about Ian Anderson, you were right, which we'll get to. I mean, the Mets did, uh, the Mets did against Ian Anderson what we expected them to do. He leads the league in walks. He walked four guys. They knocked him out in the fifth inning. They tagged him for four runs. Like, if I told you this morning at 5 a.m. when you were on the air or anyone else, hey, here's the final line on Ian Anderson. Four and two-thirds innings, seven hits, four runs, four walks. We'd say, great. There's a really good chance the Mets win the game. The problem was this was just, look, I, it's not even worth spending that much time on his performance, Taiwan Walker. He was just bad. And hopefully we can chalk it up as a, hey, it kind of happens in baseball. It's happened to Carlos Carrasco a bunch of times this season. And hopefully this is an A, an injury, or B, a trend that he set last year, which was he was awful in the second half of the season. I, this is not a, a second guess on Buck. I'm just going to give you my wondering alouds that I had during this game. Taiwan Walker was so shaky that a part of me thought, after the first inning, when he got through the inning and he threw 33 pitches, you know what? F it. Call it a day. Let's just pull him right now. It's 33 pitches. You got a lot of games coming up. It'd be nice. You know, Taiwan Walker on regular rest at least is coming off a performance in which he only threw 33 pitches. But I understand with the doubleheader tomorrow and with the hope that maybe Taiwan Walker can settle down, which he's done before. You know, we saw him in that Yankee game give up back-to-back home runs in the first inning and then settled in and pitched well. But there was a part of me that thought, this is just going to get worse. When he gave up the home run to Michael Harris to start the second inning, even though it was a odd home run, 
And we've seen a few of those in this series. Tyler Naquin actually hit one the night before. It appeared to be a fly ball to left field and it got out. But when he gives up the home run to Michael Harris and you already have Trevor Williams ready and now you got the top of the order. Now I'm starting to say, uh, okay, you ready, Buck? You ready to take him out? Then he gives up a hit to Ronald Acuna and I'm like, all right, uh, Buck, you ready to take him out? Then he gives up a, a bloop. It wasn't a rip, but a bloop to Dansby Swanson. And now I'm getting a little like, all right, Buck, what the hell are we doing here? He don't have it. Let's just call it like it is. Sometimes you just got to admit, guy doesn't have it. Then he gives up a base hit to Matt Olson. <laughs> and then finally, Buck made the call and Taiwan Walker was saved. Trevor Williams, hey, props to Trevor Williams. I know he gave up a double to Eddie Rosario in that second inning, so he gave up a couple of runs that Ty left on base. The inherited runners did score. But overall, Trevor Williams did exactly what you wanted. I can't say he kept them in the game because when you're down eight to nothing, it's it it's tough to say he kept them in the game. And most of the time Trevor was pitching, it was eight to one. So I would phrase it as he kept it right there. And we didn't know what right there would be because they're down eight to one. But Trevor Williams did a fine job. I I it wouldn't have been nuts to push him even more. You don't have to worry about pinch hitting him, obviously. And he got through the fifth inning. He was sort of lucky because Michael Harris was thrown out by Starling Marte, a play that Brian Snitker challenged. But Trevor was great. And look, every team needs a guy like this. The Mets had it back in the day with Darren Oliver. And before that, Patrick Mahomes, a long reliever, Pat Mahomes. Not Patrick Mahomes, sorry. I'm so used to the quarterback now. His dad, Pat Mahomes. You need a guy that can do this. What was frustrating is is that, and it really started in the bottom of the first inning down 4 nothing. the Mets had opportunities. And, and I don't think we're ever going to look at this game and say they should have won this game. They, they shouldn't have won this game. They, they, when you're starting pitcher, pitches one inning and allows eight runs, you shouldn't win. But right from the get-go, they had opportunities. Right from the get-go. Brandon Nimmo, leadoff double. Just score him. That was my thought. Just Move him to third if you're Marte. Drive him him in if you're Lindor. And it's a 4-1 to game. Okay, you get a run back. And they were unable to do it, mainly because Acuna made that incredible leaping catch against Alonzo. Credit to Acuna, who had a pretty good game overall. He did have four hits and some great defensive plays. But off the bat, I'm thinking, oh, here we go. 4-2 game. And Acuna made a great catch. But then in the second inning, we witnessed... Joey Cora make just a huge mistake. Just a, it was an F-up. That's what we'll call it. It was an F-up. Two outs and nobody on. The Mets are rallying because Ian Anderson can't throw a strike. Bad Ian Anderson showed up after he gave up that hit to Naquin. He's walking Guillerme. He's walking Tomas Nito, which is very tough to do. Walking Tomas Nito is not easy. It's like you have to try. You have to say to yourself, I'm trying to walk Tomas Nito. And here you are. And at this point, remember, it's 8 nothing because the Braves put the four up in the second. So it's 8 nothing. Ian Anderson can't throw an effing strike. If I'm a Brave fan, I'm ripping my hair out. I got bases loaded, two out. Nimmo strokes a single. And for some reason, Joey Cora is sending Luis Guillerme from second base. Why? You have to know the situation. You have to know, A, who the runner is. Luis isn't fast. B, who's getting the ball in center field? Michael Harris. I know he hasn't been around that long, but there's a scouting report on him. He's got a pretty good arm. And then more importantly than that, you got to know the score. 
You're down eight to one. Now you got Starling Marte coming up. If you hold the runner, at least you're giving Marte an RBI guy an opportunity to drive a bunch of runs in. Huge mistake. I mean, right out of the gate. I know it doesn't take a brain science scientist. Brain scientist. Doesn't take a scientist. Doesn't take a rocket scientist. Scientist. Brain surgeon. It doesn't take someone. What is it? Brain surgeon. Brain surgeon. How about that? You would think I was the one who's been up for 36 (laughs) hours straight, Pete. Lucky guess. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to know when you're losing 8 nothing. you're likely to lose. But when you waste the opportunity in the first and then you have a guy thrown out at the plate down 8-1, to those are all the warning signs you need that you're going to lose. But it didn't stop there. In the third inning, they had opportunities. Two on, two out, Jeff McNeil struck out. In the fourth inning, they had an opportunity, and they didn't cash in until the fifth. And at this point, look, Trevor Williams had pitched well. He had kept it at 8-1, to one, and they start rallying in the fifth inning. And the crowd was awesome. I mean, City Field, you would think at 8-1, to one, they could give up. They could get hot. It's humid outside. It's disgusting. But the fifth inning, the ballpark was rocking. When Jeff McNeil had that C&I single to right field, and here comes my man Darren Ruff in his Met debut, City's rocking. And when he rips that two-run double, City Field is moving. And then Eduardo Escobar comes through. And let's touch on this. This is how the Mets are going to manage games. Buck Showalter doing what Gabe Kapler did a year ago, and it worked last year. It didn't work this year. The Giants suck. I think the Giants have lost more games this season than they lost all of last year, which is incredible. But not because it was very predictable. But the Giants were a platoon team. And Buck Showalter in the fifth inning said, okay, it's go time. You're going to send a lefty out there to face Tyler Naquin? Okay. I'm going to give you a left-handed eater in Darren Ruff because that's what he is. That's why I defended those moves because Darren Ruff crushes left-handed pitching. And he faced two lefties today, ripped a two-run double, and ripped a line drive where Michael Harris made a tremendous play. That was against A.J. Minter in the seventh inning. But he goes to rough for Naquin. I was surprised in that. I'll tell you what I was surprised about. And it turned out to be a great move by Buck, so I was an idiot. I was surprised he didn't go Canna for Naquin. Not because Canna hits lefties. He doesn't. He's actually a reverse split guy. But I thought he was figuring, hey, I have to replace Naquin with the guy who pinch hits for him in left field. Can is a better defensive player than Darren Ruffin left. But Buck was thinking far, far better than I was. Buck's thinking about offense. He ain't thinking about who's going to play defense in the sixth inning. So he gives you the better offensive matchup. Same thing with Eduardo Escobar. Eduardo Escobar is a platoon player, and he hits as a right-hand hitter, and he came through. So we saw him use his bench pieces and then have to make a decision in the sixth inning. And that was Vogelbach, two on, two out, tying run. What do I do? And I hate to say it for anyone who's falling in love with Daniel Vogelbach, and you should, he can't hit lefties. I know we haven't seen that yet. So sometimes you need to see something with your own eyes before you really believe it. But there are numbers. They exist. He doesn't hit lefties. So it was an obvious and right decision for Buck Showalter to say, I got to go to Mark Hanna. The problem is it didn't work because Canna struck out as the tying run in the sixth inning. 
What I felt in this game, and Pete's going to love this, but what I felt in this game, because this is an indicator of how I think games are going to go, most bullpens have lefties. The Nationals didn't. You're going to have a lot of this, maybe as early as the fifth inning like we saw. I think the Mets need one more threat off their bench. And hear me out, because I know right now is not the time because they have a doubleheader on Saturday and because they just had a starting pitcher go one inning. But in general, in general, do the New York Mets need two, four, six? Do they need nine guys in their bullpen? Or eight guys in their bullpen? I mean, maybe with the way that they've been pitching at times, yes. (laughs) No, no. Do they? They have starting pitchers, Pete, that outside of Taiwan Walker tonight, in general, go six innings every start. They do. Now, I get it. You're going to run into a day like today where he doesn't go six innings and he ruins your bullpen by pitching one inning. I admit that. And then you have to make short-term adjustments, maybe calling up an extra arm. But in general, do the New York Mets need... 13 pitchers on their staff. I know that's become what everybody does in 2022, but I'm telling you, you have Jacob DeGrom, assuming he's healthy. You have Max Scherzer. You have Cookie Carrasco, who's eight innings. You have uh, Chris Bassett, who eats innings. And until today, Taiwan Walker eats innings. Do you need 13 pitchers and eight guys coming out of your bullpen? Because if the answer is no, if I could at least convince you, Pete, or anyone listening that the answer is no, that means you don't have four guys on your bench. You have five. That means the fifth guy could be, take your choice, Mark Vientos, Francisco Alvarez, another weapon. See, most teams are okay with four guys on their bench because they don't have four positions that are platooning. They're not using three different bench players in the fifth inning. So I'm just saying the way they're built, and I'm not even complaining. I, I like the way they're built. They've got mashers who hits certain pitchers. I'm just saying, I felt this way watching this game on Friday. One more bat. A five-man bench. It kind of fits. Now, I don't know if the Mets are going to do it. I know that most teams like having eight guys out of their bullpen, and right now is not the time to do it because of the doubleheader where they will get an extra guy. The extra guy is going to be David Peterson, but you do have the extra guy. And then, of course, you know, you just taxed your bullpen a lot. So I'm not even suggesting this is anytime soon. I think more and then in September you get the extra guys anyway so maybe I'm just making an October point and in October my point makes even more sense because you have less pitching even needed and you have more off days so really my point is for about a two-week time period in late August no I but that I will agree upon because the one thing that today's game proved uh, going up against the, the the Braves pitching staff is they're built for the playoffs Pitching-wise, pitching rotation-wise, pitching depth-wise. Yes. Because they've got three lefties out of the bullpen. That's freaking annoying. And the Mets don't have enough right-handed batters to face. Like you said, they basically didn't have that one more guy to go to. It's a problem. Well, you you put yourself in a spot where if you make your big moves in the fifth inning and you're getting the matchups you want in the fifth inning, you put yourself in a spot where in the eighth inning you don't have the matchups you want. Uh, I'm not saying that even happened today. didn't necessarily happen today, but you can see it happening. You know, I just think, I. in fact, I'll give you this example. I'll give you a more specific example of where the bat would have been needed. In the ninth inning, let's say the Mets weren't down four. They were down three. Obviously, William Contreras tacked on a bomb. Or even, it was nine to five. McNeil hits a home run, it's nine six. 
Let's say the Mets got a few guys on base and Tomas Nito's spot came up in the order. And even though Nito had a double in the eighth inning of this game, if Nito had come up as the tying run in the ninth inning, the Mets had one guy left on their bench, and it was James McCann. You're not even pinch hitting Tomas Nito for James McCann. It's like Tweedledee or Tweedledum. Neither guy can hit. So if the Mets were going to bring up the tying run to the plate and Nito was going to be in a big spot, you were left naked. You were left with nobody to use off your bench other than just riding it out with Tomas Nito, which I know Buck likes to do anyway. So I think when you pinch hit for Vogelbach, which will happen, especially against the tough lefty, and you pinch hit for Naquin, which will happen against the lefty, and you pinch hit for Guillerme, which may happen against the lefty, you just used your entire bench because the fourth guy on your bench is a catcher. But you want to pinch hit for your catcher because your catchers aren't very good offensively. So that would be an example where if the Mets had rallied a little bit more in that ninth inning, uh, it would have been more obvious, I think, for everyone to see. Yeah, damn right they need another guy on the bench. Uh, But either way, look, the bullpen did a really good job keeping this game close. I think it was just frustrating because they had so many opportunities in this game. But when you give up nine runs, you're not going to win. Uh, That's the bottom line. Michael Givens didn't give up a run, but Michael Givens was very shaky. He was very close to getting destroyed by the City Field faithful when he walks the leadoff hitter on four pitches, and then it looks like he's going to walk Michael Harris in front of Acuna and then gets lucky. You know, gets Michael Harris to basically line out into a double play, even though it was bounced. You know, your old-fashioned 5-6-3 double play. Uh, He sort of got lucky, so I don't think there's any Med fan that trusts Michael Givens in a big spot. But overall, the bullpen did a fine job. Uh, they lose this game. The, the first game of this series was so important. And, and that's why what Buck did on Thursday was essential, which is put that hammer down and say, let me take the opener. Because even right now, after losing the second game of this series, I still feel good. Because we're back to where this thing started. And where this thing started was with a four-game lead in the loss column in the National League East. And as we talked about coming into this series, just hold serve. Whether it's winning three out of five or losing three out of five, you're pretty much in the same spot standings-wise. And that's really what this is about. It's about finding a way to win the National League East. So in the opener of this series, especially when they jumped out to an early lead and they had a 5 nothing lead after three, it was really, really important to make sure that you took game one. And... We've talked about this before here on Rico Bronia. I'm a big fan of using my best reliever in the biggest spot in the game. And that's not always going to be the ninth inning. What was fun about what Bug did on Thursday night was he gets the six innings out of Carrasco in which he's brilliant outside of the home run to Acuna. I thought he could have pushed him into the seventh inning. He was coming off a one, two, three inning. He looked pretty good, but I get it. He goes to Adam Ottavino who was so frustrating because he gets the first two guys out, is ahead 0-2 on Orlando Arcia, and then base hit, wild pitch, base hit, gives up a run. He gets out of it, and he strikes out Acuna, thank God, but Adam Adovina made you sweat, and he's going to make us sweat because he's not this good. He's just not. Not a knock on him. It's the reality. So you've got yourself a two-run lead, and Buck says, wow, against the heart of the order, I should use my best pitcher. And he described this after the game, and I believe him. He basically said, 
I'm going to have him face the best hitters, and then we'll see about the ninth inning. Because, And that's the point. That's why you should use your closer in the eighth inning if the better hitters are coming up in the eighth inning because you've got yourself different avenues about how you can handle it. Avenue number one is I get a great eighth inning and I'll worry about the ninth inning with someone else, but that guy's facing weaker hitters than what that guy would have faced in the eighth inning. Because if you use your eighth inning guy in the ninth inning, he's facing weaker hitters in the case of what happened on Thursday. So option number one is you flip-flop them. We saw the Mets do that earlier this season against the Dodgers. It obviously didn't work as Seth Lugo blew the save, but we'll flip-flop the guys. Option number two is I get a great eighth inning and then maybe my offense breaks this game open. Maybe I get like a five-run eighth inning. And remember, the Mets had two one and two out, or two one and one out. They had a shot to break it open in the eighth inning. They didn't. And then avenue number three, which is the one Buck took, is, well... If he doesn't throw a lot of pitches in the eighth, maybe I have him pitch the ninth too. And that was the avenue that fit for a few reasons. A, Diaz was rested. B, he only threw 11 pitches. And C, the Mets didn't break it open. And so when he went to Diaz in the eighth, I said to the buddy I was with, this could go five different ways. Let's see what happens in the top of the eighth inning. Let's see if the Mets break it open in the bottom of the eighth inning, and then you'll know, we'll all know, should he come out for the ninth inning. And based on 11 pitches, based on the Mets not breaking it open, it was obvious to give him the ninth, and look, it wasn't easy. Rosario hits an 0-2 pitch near his eye somehow for a base hit. It looked like Diaz was weakening because he was about to walk Orlando Arcia on four pitches, and then Orlando Arcia hands us a gift. Just hands us that gift with that check swing. So I loved what Buck did. I think that because right now, and things can obviously change on how we feel about this bullpen, right now you don't trust anybody in this pen outside of Diaz, even Adovino. You just don't. So I think the six-out save or the five-out save, I think is going to become more routine in the bigger game, especially in October, especially in October, when you've got all those built-in off days in the postseason. There's a reason why Joe Torre was able to do that with Mariano. Not just because he trusted Mariano, he was the greatest closer of all time, but because with all those off days in the playoffs, it's not as challenging as when you do it during the regular season. Like, you're seeing the challenge of what Buck did the other night. Diaz was not available for the Friday night game. Turned out not to matter. I don't know if he's available for either game Saturday. We like to make an assumption he is. We don't know that. And Buck's not going to tell us. We'll find out. Potentially. Uh, we do have news about Saturday, by the way. What's that? We have the starters. We know the order. Do you want to take a guess or no? So, well, I'll tell you what I would want to do. Uh, my preference is to have Max Scherzer pitch the nightcap because if I win the first game of the doubleheader, I go for the kill with Max Scherzer. If I lose the first game of the doubleheader, I have my protection and my stopper in Max Scherzer. Well, I think you said that the other day, and I believe that Buck Showalter is a fan of Rico Bronya podcast because that's what he did. It's David Peterson game one and Max Scherzer game two. Good, good. And I know that the Braves are doing, they got Odorizzi and Max Freed. Obviously, Odorizzi's a new Brave. It's going to be his Brave debut. And Max Freed is their ace. I think they're doing the same thing. So Freed's going to pitch the nightcap. We get Fre- we get Max versus Max, which we got a few weeks ago, and we get Odorizzi against David Peterson in the first game, which is fine. Like I, I, I don't know if Brian Snitker or Buck Showalter is kind of playing with each other, thinking, "Oh, what are you going to do?" And I'm going to do this. Look, I'd start Max in the nightcap anyway. I've always been a fan of that with doubleheaders, where 
if there's a clear better pitcher, sometimes there isn't, but if there's a clear better pitcher, I want the guy in the second game because then I know what I'm dealing with. Like, for example, let's say David Peterson's terrible and the Mets have to use their entire bullpen. You basically know going into the nightcap, all right, Max, you find me a way to get me eight innings, bro. And Max is good enough and Max is smart enough and Max is such a competitor that he will. So I think it's better that way. Obviously, you hope you take the first game and you go for the kill with Scherzer at night. But I love the idea of kind of using my better pitcher later in the day. So we'll get Max Max to wrap it up and we'll get David Peterson against Jake Odorizzi uh, to kick this baby off. As far as the other things from Friday night, what I loved was Alonzo because Alonzo set the tone of this series. The RBI single in the first, the laser beam home run in the third inning. I know they got Tyler Naquin hitting two home runs and Vogelbach hitting another home run, but Pete really set the tone for this series. And that was great to see. And it was a really good win. I mean, a solid performance by Carrasco. You saw Edwin Diaz give you the flashes of what we're going to need as Met fans if the Mets are going to take this season to another level. He is so freaking important. And, and the turnaround of Edwin Diaz, which some people mock. Like I was seeing the, the other day a lot of, hey, let's go back to 2019 and 2020 and mock all the Met fans for ripping Edwin Diaz. Well, yeah, he was terrible. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with admitting that we didn't trust Edwin Diaz for a very long time because he wasn't trustworthy. But what Edwin Diaz has done, and I think it's easier to say it now because here we are in 2022 where he's having this all-time kind of season, maybe the greatest season we've ever seen from a reliever. Edwin Diaz, every single season as a Met got a little bit better. A little bit better. 2019 was a disaster. And what's odd about 2019 is that he actually was really good for the first two months of the season. Edwin Diaz until Memorial Day was tremendous. Look it up. And then he just completely fell off a cliff. But even 2020 and then last year, he was a little bit better. Little bit better. And now we're at the point where he's got a confidence, where he's got a swagger where adversity doesn't kill him. The only thing Edwin Diaz did this season that I still don't understand was the the amazing comeback the Mets made against the Giants earlier this season. They came all the way back. They're about to win. Edwin Diaz gets this huge double play and then ends up blowing the game anyway. And after the game says, I screwed up because after the double play, I just figured the game was over. I'm like, What? You needed to get one more out. The game wasn't over. You're a closer. You're to get three outs. You got two, bro. It was a weird response, but look, I mean, that's a blip. That's the only blip, basically. He's been, he's been amazing. Is he the National League Cy Young Award winner? No, he's not. But is he had a Cy Young caliber season? Yes. My view on closers winning the Cy Young is this. You need help if you're going to be a closer to win the Cy Young. You need there not to be another guy. And sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there are years in Cy Young races where there just isn't another person, where the next best starting pitcher had like a high two ERA. But as Pete will tell you, and he will say it so proudly because he's on his fantasy team, Sandy Alcantara is the Cy Young Award winner. I mean, what do we what do we do? I mean, what is he? Four complete games already this season. I think three of them are shutouts. By the way, 
uh, one negative about our fantasy league is about two or three years ago, we decided to take away the complete game shutout stat. And that would have been huge for me this year. I'd be winning it every week. It'd be outrageous. <laughs> I had to take it away because nobody was getting complete games anymore. I feel bad, trust me, because I've had complete games this year too. I've got this great rotation, but I had to do it. I apologize. But Sandy Alcantara is the Cy Young Award winner. He just is. And that, that's not a knock on Edwin Diaz. The, the MVP thing is more interesting. John Heyman brought that up the other day, and it's, it's interesting. I don't agree he's an MVP, not that Heyman said he is, but sometimes a closer can be an MVP because they impact more games. Uh, when Willie Hernandez won the MVP and Dennis Eckersley won the MVP, well, specifically Willie Hernandez, before I get to Eckersley, Willie Hernandez won the MVP and the Cy Young in 1984 for the Detroit Tigers. 84, yes, 84. It was the year they won the World Series, so... 84, he threw out of the bullpen, and I don't have this in front of me, but I'm just based on history, like 140 innings. So he was a reliever who pitched multiple innings every single day. And look, Edwin Diaz did pitch multiple innings the other day, but he's not ending up with 140 innings. But I do understand how the MVP could be considered most valuable, but it goes back to the same point I made about Cy Young. To have a reliever win the MVP, to me, you need the help that there's nobody else. You need it to be that kind of year where there's really no outstanding candidate. And right now in the National League, there is an outstanding candidate. And that's Paul Goldschmidt. And they're in first place, or at least they're close to first place. They're in a playoff race. So the Mets don't need to bring home all these awards. They only need to bring home one award. Well, a few awards. Award number one, the National League East. Award number two, the National League pennant. And award number three, a world effing series. Now, those are the only awards that matter. And now, we can look at this series in a much more traditional way. The Mets won game one. The Braves won game two. Now, it's a three-game series. Okay? Now, it's your traditional three-game series. And here would be my realistic goal looking at this weekend. Win one of the two games against Atlanta. Win one of the two games in this doubleheader. Naturally, the Scherzer game seems to be the, the, the more winnable game. But then again, you are facing Max Freed, who ain't easy to beat. Win one of these two games, hand the baseball to Jake, 2-2 series, and say, hey, you're familiar with a game five. Remember the Dodger game? Bring it home. And even though the Mets don't win when Jake pitches, maybe everything's about to change. So right now... We're back to square one. The Mets win game one. The Braves fight back. And now, let's go. We'll give you uh, another Rico Bronia after this series is over. We'll focus on the final three games of this series, the double dip. And obviously, Jake's return to City Field. And we'll see where we are. How you feeling, Pete? You feeling all right? You feeling confident or you feeling tired? I'm very tired, but I do feel I still feel very good about the series. I, I, I think you nailed it. You know, today wasn't a good game by for Tywin Walker, but yesterday really simmered things down. I still very, feel very good about taking the series. All we need to win is two games. It's all good. No pressure. And by the way, one thing that I wanted to hit on. We loved that move so much yesterday with Edwin Diaz. It was so important, and for many different reasons, especially today, it wasn't even be used. Guess who tried to make the same move today in the Yankee game? Aaron Boone. Oh, did he? I'm on DVR. I haven't seen anything about the Yankee game. I usually do it. Now, you can spoil it because 
that's okay. Like, you can give me the result. But what, he asked for six outs from Clay? Uh, well, he put him in the eighth inning. I'll just put it that way. Well, he's done that before, though. Because, because here's the thing, and it's not just Boone and it's not just Buck. We have now moved into a world in which managers in general are good with using their best reliever in the eighth inning. Like, it used to be such a crazy thing. Like, oh, my God, you're using her closer in the eighth inning. I think now it's more, it's become more normal. And even though it, it's a six-out save, and I understand that, and it's similar to Mariano Rivera, the reason it's not fully similar to Mariano Rivera is that Buck would have taken Edwin out if he threw 17 pitches in the eighth inning. I'm convinced of that. I mean, I believe what Buck is saying in that regard, and I've seen him do it going back to that game against the Dodgers. So I don't think it's necessarily, okay, Edwin, now in the playoffs it's different. But in the other night's case, and in sometimes the case with Clay Holmes, because Boone's done that before, it's not you're getting six outs. It's I'm giving you the eighth inning because this is the most important inning, and then we'll see about the ninth inning. No, we'll see. Do we need him in the ninth inning? Should we do him in the ninth inning? We'll see. So I love the fact that managers have made that normal because for a long time it wasn't. Now, now, but my question too is this is, it, it, this is something that's kind of, we touched this on the last podcast. You said, you know, the started pitching is pretty much going six innings. I'd still like them to go one more because it helps lessen the workload of the bullpen. You know, because now rather than having to go to Edwin Diaz as much, maybe, right. or even though we do know we're going to rely on Edwin Diaz, now there's just one other guy you have to rely on rather than multiple guys. My question too is here though, the mentality of the closer needs to change now. Because we don't have those quintessential Mariano Rivera's, you got the ninth. You, you, and you're the eighth inning guy. Now it's literally, you get whatever inning we choose to, to throw you in because this is the most important part of the game. Can the relievers adapt? I, I, I think that it's already happening. I mean, Edwin Diaz, when he, I won't even use the other night because it was a six-out save, but the game against the Dodgers where he came in in the eighth inning against the heart of the order, he was great. He was great. He adjusted fine. And the guy who blew the game was Seth Lugo, a guy who didn't blow the game because of the enormity of the ninth inning. He blew the game because he's Seth Lugo, and he's not that good. Like, Seth Lugo's pitched the ninth inning before. So Andrew Miller started to change this years ago, the way Miller was used by Cleveland out of the bullpen, where basically Francona said, this is my best weapon. I'm going to use him in the biggest spots. Now, I don't know if we're ever going to see this more exaggerated where Buck uses Diaz in the seventh inning. Like, does that happen? I'll give you an example. Bases loaded, one out, you're up by two runs, Acuna and the top of the order is coming up, and it's the seventh inning. Like, I could make a fair argument to you, F it, I'm just going to Edwin Diaz right there. Because if I go to Trevor May, there's a decent chance I blow the game. I never use Edwin Diaz. I never get to him. And I think everything in life is a lesson. Buck Showalter learned a lesson years ago about Zach Britton. He learned, oh my God, I didn't use my best reliever. I'm not saying it takes you to that moment where you're using him in the seventh inning, but you have to consider it. And I think those things are being considered for the first time ever, where if I have a great pitcher out of the bullpen, why am I saving him for a moment that A, may not happen, and B, maybe against batters that aren't nearly as good as the guys I'm asking a lesser pitcher to get out in the eighth or seventh inning. So I don't know if Buck's ever going to do that because it is out of the box. 
Like, you go to Edwin Diaz, bases loaded, one out in the seventh inning, he's not getting an eight-out save. You're not asking him for that. You're asking him to get those two outs and then maybe three more. So, it'll be fun. I, I Again, I don't think this situation would arise in the regular season. It's more a postseason question. But one thing Buck's done, and it's so different than the former manager, who I don't even want to mention the name of, the former manager used to be on with Craig and I, and I pushed him on games being different in September and April. He said, I manage every game the same way. And Buck admitted yesterday, it's a different time of year, man. And it is. It is a different time of year. And these are different kinds of games because these games are really, really important. Winning the division is essential. I don't have official odds. I'll just give you the odds in my head. If the Mets win the division, I think they've got a decent shot to win the National League pennant. Pretty good. 50-50? Maybe. If they settle for a wild card spot and have to go through San Diego and LA and Atlanta, I think their odds are very slim of winning the pennant. Doesn't mean they can't. Of course they can. You have Max Scherzer, you have Jacob DeGrom. They're a very good team. Not saying they can't. I'm saying the obvious, which is their odds become a little bit more difficult. So make your odds as small as possible. Win the freaking division. And I don't think we can take Our psyche can't take not winning this division. And I brought this up earlier. I didn't get to expand on it. I'm not going to expand on it. I just want to give you the information. This franchise has basically never won a pennant race. Never. Think about this. 73, they did. 1973, they legitimately won a pennant race. They sucked, but they won a pennant race. They were under 500 in last place in August or whatever they were. They had a great September. They won a pennant race. Only time. 1969, they ran past the Chicago Cubs while they were standing still. They won that division going away. 86, no pennant race. 88, no pennant race. When's their next division title? Oh my God, I've got to go to 2006. No pennant race. 2015, we thought there'd be a pennant race and then they blew past the Washington Nationals. But there have been pennant races that they've lost. 2007, they lost. 2008, they lost. 1999 and 2000, may have made the playoffs. They didn't win the division. They lost. 1985, they lost. 1984, they lost. This franchise, and I know it has nothing to do with Francisco Lindor. It doesn't. I know that. But this franchise and us, we as Mets fans, we have never seen the Mets win a pennant race. Like legitimately Win a divisional race. Hasn't happened. Want to find a wild card race? They won? Great. There's a few of those. But other than 1973, this franchise has never won a divisional race. Win this divisional race. End it. Or make it not a divisional race and run away with it. So this can go into the cupboard of 2015, 2006, 1988, 1986, and 1969. Yeah, no, I think for, for my heart, I'd take that route because I can't take any more craziness. I wa- like The playoffs are going to be crazy as it is. Every team in the NL is going to be pretty much stacked. You're going against the, it's, it's the Padres, it's the Dodgers, Cardinals are going to be around, Brewers, who knows what's really happening with them. And it's going to be the Braves. I mean, the, the, those are the teams we're probably talking about. They're all pretty much stacked, in my opinion. They're all tough. So whoever we're facing, that in the playoffs, it's going to be tough already. I don't need that craziness going into a pennant race. I just want to take the division, call it a day. I want it 
a week before the season ends, we get to pop the champagne. Yes. I want to sit back and watch <laughs> some dopey wild card series and debate with you. Who would you rather face? Right. <laughs> you want to face the Brewers? You want to face the Phillies? Well, Philadelphia is a great commute. We could just drive on down there and do the Rico Bronian. Of course, Rico played for the Philadelphia Phillies. <laughs> like, that's what I want the week leading up to the divisional series. But we got a long way to go. We'll give you Rico Bronia Sunday after that series ends, after this series ends. Get you ready for the next series, which is against Cincinnati, and then a big weekend against the Philadelphia Phillies. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>